created live on Fireside. Welcome to Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. This is your weekly podcast on the issues facing higher education. Uh, welcome and thank you for being here. It is one o'clock and we are going to start the show. I am going to bring the music down because we are going to talk about our uh, stories of the day. And unfortunately, we're going to talk about two tragedies facing higher education right now at the University of Virginia. Uh, University of Virginia is mourning shoot, uh, students uh, who were killed this weekend. Uh, three students from the University of Virginia uh, were shot and killed on Sunday night, reportedly by a classmate who also injured two other students. The alleged assailant, Christopher Darnell Jones, uh, who was 22 years old, was arrested following an hours-long search and has been charged with three counts of second-degree murder. Officials say Monday that those charged could be uh, those charges could be amended depending on the results of the investigation. This comes to us from uh, Inside Higher Education. Also, from uh, this week's news, uh, from ABC News from uh, Idaho, four University of Idaho students were killed in an isolated and targeted attack with an edged weapon like a knife, according to police. Uh, who released more information this morning. Students who were found dead on Sunday were identified by the uh, Moscow-Idaho police as Ethan Chapin, 20, of Conway, Washington, Madison Mojin, 21, of uh, Cure de Lenin, Idaho, Zana Kernodal of Avondale, Arizona, and Kylie Gongalves of Raytherm, Idaho. Um, these are two very tragic incidents that we are tracking right now. Um, I am going to remind people who are our higher education professionals as well as re uh, listeners that we don't know all the stories from either place. I'm seeing a lot of things on uh, social media jumping to conclusions about um, what did or what did not happen on these campuses. And we have to take into account that we have lost seven uh, young people of promise uh, due to violence, and we want to make sure that we uh, make sure that we give grace to those who are in mourning, uh, to the campuses, and to those uh, most affected. Uh, and now we're going to switch gears a bit, and we also have a story out of the University of California. 48,000 University of California academic workers are going to go on strike. Um, this comes to us from Higher Ed Dive. And uh, some 48,000 academic workers at the University of California system began striking on Monday, demanding better rate wages and benefits after failing for more than a year to negotiate a deal. These unionized employees, among them teaching assistants, postdocs, scholars, and graduate student researchers are calling for a minimum annual salary of $54,000 for all grad workers. Postdocs should receive a minimum of $70,000 a year in salary, according to uh, union officials. Unions supporting the workers are calling the UC strike the largest ever at a U.S. academic institution and say it threatens to significantly disrupt operations across the 10 campus system. Um, this is uh, quite uh, timely in that today's topic is on uh, unions and collective bargaining has been a part of campus labor for decades, but with unionization of resident assistant, graduate students, and other personnel uh, on rise, 
as well as students unionizing in their off-campus jobs, such as Starbucks and at, uh, at Amazon. Unions are hot. Um, this episode will feature uh, Al, o Al Gordon O'Connell uh, to discuss labor and organizing origins and trends. Let me introduce you to Al. Hi, Al. Hey. Hey, Hi. Dr. DeVoe. How are you? It's good to see you. Uh, it's very nice to see you, old friend. And oh, dear friend. I shouldn't say old friend. I'm <laughs> dear friend. It's fine. If, okay. if we start doing the math, we'll run out of fingers and toes real quick. <laughs> We're so. going to run out of fingers fingers and I need to break out my calculator. So there you go. Um, so let me introduce you to Al. Al Gordon O'Connell is managing partner at the firm Pile Rome, a labor and employment firm in Boston, Massachusetts. As a partner with the firm, Al has a varied labor and employment practice uh, career handling matters before the courts, arbitrators, and a number of federal and state administrative agencies, such as the National Labor Relations Board, otherwise known as NLRB, the Federal Labor Relations uh, Authority, the Vermont Labor Relations Board, and the Massachusetts Department of Labor Relations. Um, he also advises labor unions in collective bargaining and matters of contract administration, employee representation, and internal union affairs. He's also worked as a legal writer and managing editor for a national legal publishing firm and has served as contributor and editor of a number of labor and employment publications, including Union Contract Law Bulletin and Practical Dispute Resolution. Al is a graduate of Boston University School of Law, and he received his undergraduate degree from Cornell University. Welcome, Al, to Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. It's great to have you here. Thanks, Laura. It's great to be here with you. And so I want to remind folks this is uh, on Fireside, and you can share the show by going to uh, the uh, menu in the lower left-hand corner, click on Broadcast to the World. Um, by doing that, you can then copy it, and you can paste it into your preferred social media accounts. Um, love to have you do that. If you have a question, you want to participate, please, uh, if you are in the audience, please feel free to request to come on up on stage or post a question in the Q&A. Um, so Al also, and at some point we may bring Al back on a separate show to talk about uh, unionization of uh, marijuana distributors, and uh, but that's another uh, conversation for a different time. We're going to today focus on higher education. Um, so, Although there's a lot of overlap there, there Laura, I imagine, on, on college campuses. <laughs> exactly. You know, I on a separate note, at, at a point, hopefully if we can have federal legalization of marijuana and, and and that sort of thing. That's going to have a huge boon on college campuses. That will take a lot of the edge off in a variety of ways. So I'm looking forward Indeed. to that happening. Um, so uh, I was doing some research for this show, Al, and uh, you know, when it comes to certain aspects of this, we've been around for a while. Um, seen, uh, I remember. I wanted to think back, like the first time I ever had to manage uh, in terms of feeling anything about a unionization. I remember being a resident assistant. So this was a thousand years ago. And um, there was a possibility of the, uh, the, the maintenance workers going on strike on, on my undergraduate campus. And we were told if this happens, resident assistants would have to start hauling trash and that sort of thing. And that was my entree into any kind of labor consideration. And I remember 
them saying, look, there may be picket lines outside. You can choose or you cannot choose. And there were some really heated conversations, I remember, in the RA office where we were all sitting around talking about it and students whose families were union families talking about how they could never pass over, they could not cut through a picket line. What would this mean for them? And so that was my first kind of entree into this. And then as I've gotten older and as I've uh, been on these campuses and seen uh, labor uh, issues come up, I always feel like there was almost like a changing tide around the mid-90s around who was unionizing. And that's when you saw graduate students and adjuncts starting to move in that direction. Um, as you look at kind of unionization on college campuses. Is there kind of a history there? Is there something that is an outlier about colleges and universities and say the labor movement in general? Um, or do they kind of run neck and neck? Well, so when you think about a university or a college and all of the various humans who occupy that space and what they do, there are some pretty uh, dividing lines, pretty clear dividing lines, certainly between staff and faculty, and administration, and student body. And as a general matter, when you start thinking about the people who everyone agrees are just straight up employees, just straight up workers, those are exactly the type of people you were thinking about at BU, the maintenance workers who might have gone on strike. These are just employees of the university, employees of the college who give their labor in exchange for remuneration. That's a just a straight up employment relationship. And those enterprises have been had organizing for decades and decades, right? That's not out of the ordinary. Then what we started seeing is, uh, starting actually in the 70s, but with lots of ups and downs, it's a sine wave if you look at it, um, a, a sense of trying to push the organizing effort into other parts of, these, uh, of the institution. Faculties began uh, organizing, uh, moving away from the faculty senate model to a straight up union model where they can have a, equal bargaining power with their employer. Uh, and then in the 90s and moving on, you started see it seeping into other people who perform work for the institution. And that would be students who also perform work. And right. here we are today with a broad panoply of students in that category. So as I was doing research, I found this quote from uh, his former leader of the NLRB, Bill Gould. Um, he's been quoted in reference to campus unionization that, quote, universities are businesses and student employees are no different than other employees. So that goes to what you were just saying. These students, and when we look at student employees, we, I think sometimes we talk a lot about this is a leadership position. This is volunteerism. This is a great opportunity for you. But we don't really put into play this idea of what this actually means for the student in terms of their bottom line, what they're able to do. If you're working on a college campus and you are not working at, say, Starbucks or Walmart or someplace off campus, you may be making less money on campus. You may not receive the same level of benefit. When you look at, say, you know, I'm going to use Starbucks as an example, even before unionization efforts, they were paying more money. People were even in some cases getting tuition remission and some other things like that. When you're looking at the unionization of undergraduates versus graduate students, is there, um, is there kind of a language that's used with undergrads versus graduate students that's different in terms of motivation of an undergrad versus graduate student? Or are they all the same? So the motivations are different in every category of student workers. Uh, 
if you further subdivide the genre into uh, various different subsections, you can start with people like the dining hall workers who we see going on strike and see unionizing recently um, in Dartmouth, up in Dartmouth. Yep. Um, mm -hmm. Those student workers, um, their work is not really connected in any way to their academics. They, right. This is an on-campus job. For them, it's just a job. It's no different from working at Starbucks, except it might be a little more convenient because it's a little closer yeah. to where they live and go to yeah. school. But then you start pushing the bounds. On the complete opposite end would be teaching assistants, folks who are actually teaching in the academic world, te teaching in the academic environment, working in the academic environment. And we can have debates rage about whether that's appropriate or not appropriate. I think you'll know where I land on that. But then, <laughs> But then in the middle... You get the resident assistance, which is a, yeah. a culture that you and I know well, um, yeah. having worked in it together many years yes, ago. And years ago. exactly. The question becomes in that environment where the remuneration might be somewhat different. Maybe it's um, free board. Maybe it's free room. Yeah. Maybe it's both. Is that just work? Is that academics? Is there something more there that changes the nature of it? But ultimately, the language is really the same, at least from the unionizer point of view, from people who are considering whether joining a union. The question is, am I working? And who is my boss? And what are the conditions of my employment? And do I want or need uh, to work together in concert with my fellow workers to have some strength to get what I really want and need from the boss? And that's that's just unionizing. And it doesn't matter whether you work in a steel plant or at a university, it's the same. It's the same. And, and I'm glad you're here because you have a really broad experience with unionization. And, you know, when you think about the kind of pockets of workers that you that you have represented, what can you uh, explain to the audience who you've um, kind of worked alongside, um, you know, what, what what industries you've worked within? Sure. I represent employees across almost all industries. The only work that I really don't do is in the building trades. There are some very special rules relating to building trades workers, and I, I don't work in that arena. But the workers I represent on a day-to-day -day basis, I represent steel workers and steel plants. I represent uh, grocery store workers and retail workers. I represent bus drivers. I represent municipal police officers and firefighters. I represent state employees here in Massachusetts, where I am, and up in Vermont, where I also have an office. And Really, everyone in between, anyone who has had the inkling to organize, I've probably had the chance to work with them, including faculty uh, at uh, local colleges and universities here. So for, for folks who aren't paying attention to what's kind of happened within the last year, um, there's a few examples of how unionization has kind of sprung up around higher ed. Um, Dartmouth Dining Workers, which Al um, did refer to, which was in April 2022, unanimous vote up there to unionize. Grinnell in Iowa became the country's first wall-to-wall -wall fully unionized student workforce, representing every student in hourly wage positions. That's a huge thing. Um, those two universities, along with Wesleyan University, um, have put together actually um, basically a unionization boot camp uh, where they are working with college and university uh, students and graduate students looking to undergraduate and graduate students looking to unionize. Um, so they've actually created uh, a, a basically a conduit um, and uh, systems so that people can learn more about what they need to do um, to unionize their campus. Um, and Wesleyan and Barnard colleges have both 
had unionization of the resident assistants in the last uh, last half a year. So there's a lot going on here. And and I think at some point, I think there's a different show that needs to happen around RAs. Um, last spring, I did a show with the folks at uh, George Washington University who have moved completely away from having undergraduate RAs, not because of um, salaries or anything of that nature. Um, they're actually spending more money now on staffing um, in different ways. It's their, they've hired full-time staff um, because their approach was that this is a job that uh, 18 to 22 year olds should not be doing anymore. The needs in the halls are just beyond what a 18 to 22 year old could do. When you and I were resident assistants back in the day, um, the biggest issues on campus were, were a little bit um, more manageable. Um, and we, they were not dealing with the type of things that we led the show with today, like um, murders on campus, sexual assault, um, and things of that nature, especially uh, issues around mental health. So, um, and while there were mental health issues back in the early early 90s, there it's very different today. Um, but I think that when someone is leading a uh, university uh, and this idea of unionization comes up, uh, one of the things that, that happens is they say that, all right, well, this is creating uh, a strain on the system. This is creating something uh, that is um, going to distract from the day-to-day -day of the campus. Um, and I don't particularly buy this, um, but when you hear that the, the campus itself is saying, we're not interested in unionization because this is creating a different um, kind of expectation and it's creating a distraction, how do you uh, kind of work with the folks that you represent to say, let's get away from that that language, and how do we pivot uh, people's understanding of, of who we are and what this is all about and why this is existing? Well, so there's nothing new under the sun, right? Every employer in every industry, when faced with a unionizing effort, will say, oh, it would change the culture here. We have such a great relationship with our people and we don't need someone stepping in between that. Those are just watchwords of anti-unionization. It's just the boss trying to keep his foot on the neck of the worker because if the workers get together, then the boss loses power. And that's all that's about. Um, so, But there is something to be said for changing the language and using different language about um, collaboration, about um, how a an enterprise like a university can actually benefit from a workforce that is running well, that feels protected and therefore is putting its best foot forward in all the work that it does. And so at the end of the day, it really comes down to um, talking to the people who have the vote, the employees who are deciding whether to unionize, and making sure that they understand that it is their choice and that the choice of a unionization effort uh, is not about changing culture. It's about working together and collaborating, which as you see, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but as you okay. see in, in the greater world right now with all these other unionization efforts, which I'm sure we'll talk about, yeah. a lot of it really is born out of collaboration and um, progressivism and right. things that you, that you would associate also with the college campus. So for people who are not aware, because um, maybe they haven't been part of a unionization effort or they haven't um, been on the ground, even if they were part of one, they may not even know all of the background. But um, what happens? 
let's say I want to, how does it actually mechanized work? Because you hear all about if people have to sign something and they have to turn it in and they have to vote on it. And what does all that mean? So, so kind of like, what's the workflow of a unionization effort? Sure. So the, we'll start with the typical election um, in the private sector, like most colleges and universities that we're talking about here, not all, but in the private sector, it starts with employees generating what's known as a showing of interest. Uh, there has to be a sufficient showing among the existing employees that they are interested in unionizing in order to even get a petition filed with the labor board to get an election. And so when you hear about people signing things, what they're often signing is either a petition or an authorization card in which the employee is saying either I want this union to represent me or I want an election to see if this union will represent me. So once 30% of the targeted workforce has signed cards or signed a petition, then that can be presented to the National Labor Relations Board. And the board will, as necessary, conduct hearings to determine the scope of the unit, who will be in and who will be out. In the university environment, sometimes we've had long-scale hearings and decisions about whether whole swaths of the campus can be unionized at all. But once that's done, then there will be an election. And the election will likely be on-site, on-campus, uh, but sometimes it's conducted by mail ballot if that is more, uh, if, if it's necessary during the pandemic, for one. But if the if there are various locations and people are spread out or work various schedules, sometimes doing it by mail is administratively easier, but the in-person experience is the default. And then over a day or period of days, employees will go and cast their ballots. And the board agent, the federal government agent, will stand there and count every one of those hundreds or thousands of ballots and majority rules. And it's majority of valid votes cast. So in an organizing effort among 3,000 people, if only 300 of them vote, then 150 votes can determine the fate of 3,000 people. So uh, mm. that's why it is important, uh, and it's important for unions to exercise these get-out-the-vote activities, not just to drum up union votes, but also to make sure that the voices of the people being represented are heard. Because you don't want to enter representing workers who, by on the whole, didn't vote for you. So. And so that's sort of the nuts and bolts. And, and that's really helpful. And I, and I appreciate what you were saying. And I, and I think that there's an idea here around, you know, I want to shift a bit because there's been some unionization efforts in the greater population um, beyond universities. And then we'll, we'll take it back to the universities in a second. But I want to also drill down on uh, one of the things that we saw in the last week as far as Gen Z participation in the election. Um, it was very high. Um, much higher than people uh, gave them credit for. Um, they felt that Gen Z was probably going to be very similar to millennials who have not been showing up to vote um, at the level that, you know, maybe some previous uh, generations have, um, and that Gen Z was going to be more of the same. Not the case. Um, they're a very different generation. Um, when I speak to folks about multi-generational workplaces, when I talk to people about what are we talking uh, about with, in terms of their engagement? This is a generation that sees uh, social justice as something that they that runs through them um, as part of their identity, um, and I think that is indicative of uh, how they see unions and the potential of unions and collective bargaining. I also think that they are a generation that sees where 
people have just not been getting what they deserve when it comes to salaries and things of that nature. Um, and they're much more in tune with this. Um, my last piece in this is they see people who are working two, three jobs and saying, why are we having to work two, three jobs to make a living? This is not the way I want to exist. I want to be able to have a job that pays enough that I can have a life. Okay. So they don't want to be in the struggle bus to have three, four jobs and still not be able to make, make a living. When you look at kind of the uptick of um, unionization recently at um, speaking of Boston University, there's a Starbucks on the BU campus that had not had anything to do with BU. BU is a urban campus. Um, it was in a piece of property that was not owned, not run by the university. Um, but there was a lot of student support for this particular Starbucks that was seeking to unionize. Um, we've seen this in other camp places adjacent to college campuses where students turn out to support these unions um, in a grassroots approach. Do you think that there's something different in the water right now in terms of the receptiveness of this generation? And what do you think is kind of behind it? Well, so it's not just this generation, but it is certainly uh, of this generation. And I think we are really in a perfect storm of circumstances that lead to an uptick in unionization right now. Uh, if you think about this generation, Gen Z, being another generation that is uh, told that they're unlikely to, to match the standard of living that their parents had, right? right? How do you get past that? Well, right. if you have more power to collectively bargain your conditions of employment, that may get you there. Then you move to the progressivism around unions and what unions have traditionally stood for and are more and more standing for. Uh, there are a lot of large labor unions that have a very progressive bent. But the thing about this particular labor movement is it is grassroots. Gen Z is a grassroots generation. If you look at their political activity, if you look at the way they view the world, the way they were taught and the way they see things, it's if you see the rejection of large unions by Amazon workers in large locations, while at the same time, grassroots Amazon yeah. workers are pulling together and winning elections. That's precisely what's happening. Starbucks really is not, even though there is big labor involved, the Starbucks union really started as this sort of grassroots enterprise or has a very grassroots feel about it. And I think then on top of that, you've got the progressivism, you've got the economy, you've got the pieces of the economy where the unemployment rate is so low uh, that folks really have power now. Mm -hmm. Coming out of the recession, workers have the power. Bosses are desperate to find workers, and workers are using that power. And the last piece of this per perfect storm, in my mind, is the issues of social justice that have smacked us in the face during the pandemic. Um, you know, starting, not starting with, but really fomented by the death of George Floyd, um, folks are seeing that activism is uh, and speaking out and being part of a collective movement is important. Uh, it puts me in mind of what was happening at Trader Joe's during the time uh, right after George Floyd when the Black Lives Matter movement was hitting its stride and workers at Trader Joe's were wearing buttons uh, and were getting fired for refusing to take off their buttons. That is grassroots activity. And at the end of the day, put all of that together and you can see why colleges and universities particularly are seeing an uptick in this kind of activity. Yeah. Um, 
I also think that there's, you know, we kind of forget about when you and I were talking before we prep, uh, kind of were talking about the show and the potential of the show, you reminded me of unionization of, say, the varsity athletes a few years ago that, um, you know, that that was something that when that happened, I remember people go, oh, here we go. And I, and I, I said, guess what? This is a long time coming. These folks make a lot of money for these universities. Um, they deserve at, at the very least health care. You know, I mean, like at the very least, they deserve something. And so you've seen some successes in the past. And I actually think it's probably harder to unionize uh, varsity athletes than it is to or organize and, bar uh, uh, and unionize say dining service workers um i almost feel like they did the harder ones first and then they went oh, whoa hold on a second what are your thoughts on that well so there are a lot of things to talk about there but yeah, at okay. the base of it when you think about who is most likely to organize and want to organize it really is the folks at the lower end of the economic scale those who right. are going to gain the most from organizing they're going to see the larger bang for their buck if you are a college athlete in a you know high stakes football program somewhere and your university is paying you tens of thousands of dollars in room and board and everything else they can give you legally because they can't pay you uh, right. just straight up dollars. Do you want to rock that boat? Do you think you need or representation there? But the problem is that's the top notch, right? That's the top tier folk. There are a lot of grunts on all those teams who are putting the time and putting the energy. And you can almost think of it the same way you think about, say, the National Football League Union, right? right. The Players Association works hard, not for the Tom Brady's of the world who don't really need them to negotiate a salary, but for those who are making, who are on the practice squad, making the minimum and need to know that when they have a brain injury, that the NFL is going to be behind them and take care of them. And so the same is true in large scale athletics at colleges. And it really gets back to the statutory definitions of what employees are, because that's what keeps happening. That's why it keeps bouncing back and forth. What does the law say about who is an employee? An employee is someone who works and gets remuneration. Right. And college athletes on the whole are working and getting remuneration for their work. Right. Well, and I think your point there about who is a worker is definitely something that challenges the institutional mindset. You know, like a student worker, in many cases, they say, well, that's a student worker. I'm like, it's still a worker. It's still someone who's answering the phone. It's still someone who's greeting people. It's still somebody who's flipping hamburgers. It doesn't matter if they're a student or if they're somebody who had been working in the dining room for 30 years, it's still a worker. And, you know, that idea of like hourly wage student workers, um, is there, an, an idea there in my mind that I think probably gets wrapped around to make it more difficult than others is that this idea of there's some student workers like resident assistants who are not hourly wage typically. Um, they are somebody who does a job. It's almost like being salaried, right? So, you, you know, you, you don't clock in, clock out as an RA. You just, you're in, okay? Um, when you look at that kind of thing, uh, I remember being at uh, UMass Amherst, which was one of the first campuses that had unionized RAs, and this was back in the 90s. And I had been hired to come in there to do a, a presentation for them during um, resident assistant training in the fall. 
and the resident assistant training process was actually something that every uh, year the union representative had to work with the Office of Residence Life to make sure that there was enough time set aside for students to have sleep and not be in training all day. And it was something where uh, folks were able to then uh, sit down and um, decide what are we going to cover, what are we not going to cover um, in terms of the time of day, when are we covering information. And then the last thing that I thought was interesting is that they had to have time for the union to provide announcements to um, the members of the resident assistant staff. And it was very interesting to me because at the time I was used to campuses that we just did resident assistant training up until 11, 12 o'clock at night, um, readying the halls. And at UMass, it was like, no, nothing else can happen after a certain time of day. Um, it changed how they did training. It changed how they made things work. And it has been successful, but there were growing pains. What are your thoughts on people who are afraid of change and what change may do in the long term of a sustain making a sustainable organization um, and uh, change up maybe you know we move at a glacial pace of change in higher education so this is a change to tradition as well as to process what are your thoughts on working with organizations I'm sure higher ed isn't the only or uh, uh, group that you've worked with that fears change how do you provide people who you work with with prompts on how to deal with change and how to make it more successful in terms of implementation? So yes and no. Um, the yes side of it is that the union itself and the union leadership are always in a place of wanting to um, of wanting to uh, make changes in the institution, right? Um, the uh, bedrock of management is to say, oh, change is unnecessary. And so it's about trying to explain to the boss, explain to the administration um, what can be gained mm. by change. And failing that, because, you know, I, I just concluded negotiations with a, a, a university um, here in the area, and the Outgoing administration was dead set against changes. The right. uh, but an incoming administration was willing to partner. I think Al's got a little bit of an internet issue. Um, I'm going to send him a and make sure. That I am back. To... You are back. I am okay. Back with you, baby. Back with you. So. <laughs> so you were saying right that close. the outgoing administration was was not into it and the new administration was like, no, let's work with this. Um, so tell us more. So really it came down to uh, long protracted negotiations and uh, getting to the cusp of a strike right. where the union was willing to flex its muscle, particularly in this time that we're in, to talk to the administration about issues of workload, which is always very important, um, issues of diversity, equity, inclusion, and access, and how to integrate that, um, issues of just making sure the union and the employer are partnering appropriately. Uh, and it really took a lot of work and a lot of pushing. But ultimately, um, we ended up, I think, in a place where the focus on the 
the focus on the least among us, really, the focus on those employees, those faculty members making the least um, or working the hardest really allowed for both sides of the table to see that there were that there was a group of people that we could all help. And so it really it it was a very expansive conversation that the parties had to get there. But that's what negotiations are when they're done correctly. Uh, and so, let me ask ahead. this question. Um, have you seen any examples of maybe administration going to uh, their workers and say, you know, we're, we're interested in, in kind of coming to you and saying, are you interested in unionizing uh, rather than have it come from the workers up to the administration? I have personally not seen that unicorn. I understand it exists out in the universe, but I have not seen it. It's rare is the time that okay. an employer is going to um, come forward to the employees and say, hey, think we think we'd be better bargaining with a union. Uh, it does happen in certain industries in certain places where the, the wave is coming. And instead okay. of having the wave crash over the university, the university could get ahead of it. If you think about the Grinnell, which you mentioned, where uh, they've just voted to have the first wall-to-wall unionized uh, student body, um, and that's just for people who actually work on campus. It's not just students with no work responsibilities. But it went from dining workers to all hourly paid student workers. And the parties actually had an agreement to get that election done, an agreement that included neutrality, where the employer was not trying to convince folks not to be involved. Grinnell saw it coming and knew that they would be much better off having a neutral and enjoyable campaign um, where the workers, the students could decide for themselves because they knew the writing was on the wall and they were going to be having to negotiate with these folks and better to start from a position of trust than starting after a long fought battle where the sides have been entrenched. And that's the Starbucks problem, right? Starbucks, bless its heart, every time the workers win an election, they file an appeal to the labor board. They've they've clogged the National Labor Relations Board docket with appeal after appeal after appeal, and they lose them all. They haven't won a single one. And so right. the question is why? Why do you want to have that antagonistic relationship when you know almost all of these folks are going to vote to unionize? Uh, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. lessons learned, get I Get ahead of it. it and, and there's opportunities to get ahead of it. And if you know your institution, it's just like anything else. If you know there's people talking about something, go get ahead of it. Don't let it just hit you in the face. Um, you also have to be aware of your culture, what goes on um, on your campus, know that uh, how, how news spreads and get ahead of it and do the right thing um, and realize that, you know, finding ways to, rather than try to set up speed bumps, let's try to at least install an exit ramp that everybody can get off on. Um, you know, as I was looking at this, I, I, I wonder about some differences between um, state institutions, public institutions, and privates. And it's my understanding that there's a difference on public versus private, with private colleges being required to follow policies set by the NLRB and public schools uh, that have to basically be beholding to state laws. Um, is that correct? Did I interpret this right? Um, and uh, how does this change the landscape for interest in unionizing at those institutions? Does it change up the process at all? Does it make it more difficult? What are your thoughts? 
So it does change it. You are correct. The National Labor Relations Board has jurisdiction over only private sector employers. And so that exempts from coverage uh, the federal government or state and local governments or arms of those governments. And a state university is almost always a public institution uh, governed by a public body. And therefore, the National Labor Relations Act does not apply. So the first question you ask is, does the state where the college or university exists have a law allowing for collective bargaining for public employees? And does that law include the college and university system? And it is not universal. So the first question for any uh, college uh, student or even uh, faculty or staff member seeking to organize on a public campus is, is that even allowed under state law? Now, there are ways around that as well. There are plenty of associations of students and of faculty and of staff, even in states that do not allow for unionization, uh, because those acting in, a, in concert, those folks do have the ability to um, flex their muscle and exercise some power vis-a-vis -vis their employer, even if collective bargaining is something that is not required under the law. So, uh, so you start there, and then the, there are a lot of other questions. Um, can public employees in your state go on strike? In Massachusetts, the answer is no. So this huge strike that you're seeing in California um, could not happen under Massachusetts law. That's not to say that it doesn't happen, that uh, again, that in violation of law, unions will still sometimes go out and suffer the consequences of that. So you have to start with the baseline question, can we do it? Uh, and then what kind of environment are we moving ourselves into? What's the statutory scheme, as it were? That's really helpful. Um, we are here. This is Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. We are here every week uh, or most weeks here on the Fireside uh, platform. Uh, this is uh, our show on unionization on college campuses. We are joined by Attorney Al Gordon O'Connell. Um, next week, please be sure to join us on November 22nd. We will be joined by several contributors to the book Brave Women at Work, Stories of Resilience, including higher education leader uh, Sheila Higgs Burkhalder. Uh, that will be uh, a week from today at one at noon time. Um, and then uh, December 6th, we will be back for uh, our think tank show uh, at 12 o'clock. And uh, we are looking forward to that. Every month we do have our, our um, think tank show uh, with members of the Office with Hours with Dr. DeVoe Think Tank, uh, various wonderful humans. Uh, and we will be talking about all kinds of stuff. And we always, at the Think Tank show, end up talking about Florida in some way. So that will come up because they have a new president now at the University of Florida. So we'll talk about that. Um, and if you haven't caught up with all of our past episodes, uh, we have... Uh, we are streaming on not only here on the Fireside platform, but also on iHeartRadio podcast, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. So please be sure to download and rate and review. Um, so, Al, I want to ask uh, a couple more questions here. I want to think about this. You at the beginning of the show talked about how do you frame this idea of this culture, how does the unionization, maybe uh, the argument from people on the on the uh, employer side that uh, it will mess with the culture of the institution. There are some people out there who say that, uh, that letting student workers specifically, undergraduate student workers unionize would undermine the educational side of student work. Um, I'd like your- There's a word for that. that. <laughs> My word for that is poppycock, right? <laughs> so, 
So think about it. The educational environment for students. How is going to work at the dining hall? How is going to collect trash? How is that any part of your educational environment? It's a job. You're working for remuneration. You need to work to get through college. I worked my way through college. Um, I went from working at home at a unionized grocery store to going on ca- to working on campus job where I made a third of what I made in that unionized grocery store because I was a member of a union. Um, mm-hmm. And what happens then? Why is it that the fact that you work under a collective bargaining agreement and that your conditions of employment are collectively bargained, how does that change what happens in chemistry class? I don't, I don't believe that it does. Again, we could have a more nuanced argument when we're talking about teaching assistance, even perhaps a nuanced argument about resident assistance because there is the social environment of the residence hall and how that works and the RA responsibility there. But for the straight up student worker, the hourly paid worker who comes on campus to have a, just a job, mm-hmm. it does not. It just does not change their educational environment. Having, the jo- having to have a job may change their educational experience, but mm-hmm. the fact that your job is unionized does not, not at all in so, my estimation. So let's say in the case of something, and this is because I, I just honestly don't know the answer. So I'd like your thoughts on this. So let's say someone is uh, on a college campus, let's say the library workers have unionized um, and they had been in a union for a long time. These are the full-time people who uh, are the adults, so to speak. And I hate to use the adults because these are adults, uh, you know, young adults. Um, but the people who are, are uh, employees of the institution, been around for a long time, been, been unionized. Now uh, you look at a situation where students have, undergraduate students have unionized and they are now part of um, a union are they in the same union? Are they in separate unions? How does imp- how does this impact uh, the idea of contracts? Uh, if the library union workers all uh, are up for a renegotiation of their contract, how does how does the uh, unionization of the undergraduate population potentially either strengthen or complicate? the unionization efforts or the the contract negotiation efforts of the existing union. Does that make sense? It certainly does. And there are a lot of factors that go into just even the question of whether they are in the same union or whether they unionize separately. Uh, The standard at the National Labor Relations Board, which determines whether a unit of employees is appropriate to bargain together, the standard is is whether they have a community of interest. Um, that's the, the major part of the standard. And the question is, do those student workers have a sufficient community of interest with the existing professional staff in order that they can bargain together? Sometimes the answer will be yes, and sometimes the answer will be no. There are a lot of differences between being a student worker in a library, where you will work there for a couple of years, maybe, where you may work only seasonally and not all year long. Uh, where the turnover is going to be greater, where you're not going to be getting promoted into other positions that the full-time staff are going to be promoted into. And so you could see how there may or may not be a community of interest, depending on what the workload is like. It might be different in a dining hall, where there, because in a library you're dealing with, on the whole, a professional staff. There will be professional librarians, and professionals have special status under the National Labor Relations Act to have their own bargaining units separate and apart from non-professional workers. And so when you look at all of it, that's the first question. How closely are they connected? I think on the whole, you will see 
that in certain environments like dining halls, you might see a single union among all dining hall workers. But in other places on campus, you might see a student union um, opposite a uh, full-time or part-time staff union. But at the end of the day, there really is no competition there. Uh, the boss will say, well, if you organize this group, you're going to compete for money with that group. That's not exactly true. Um, that's the, that's boss speak for, we're going to use any excuse to give you less money. It's possible but, not to make this happen. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, but at the end of the day, the strength of unionization is whether there's one union there or 10 unions there, on the whole, unions will support each other and and work together. And if you have a strike, are the unions crossing picket lines? Some can, some can't. How does that work? So I think uh, I am not jealous of other unions that work in concert with my unions. I think the more the merrier and the stronger we all are together, even if we are separated into our own little uh, unions. So that's really helpful. I, I you know, because one of the things that keeps going through my head and we've done sh several shows on this and we've I've published a bunch of my newsletters on it and talked to clients about it is the, the great resignation. Um, and how it affected higher education. And there's this level of churn of staff right now, especially that is heightened uh, to a point that higher education doesn't hire fast, um, especially, um, actually, I shouldn't say especially, at any level. We are very slow as hell when it comes to hiring people. Um, and I'm of the mindset that says we need to really look at how we employ people, how do we retain employees, how do we actually recruit employees, and we have to bake in all kinds of other, uh, all kinds of details of this, and that includes collective bargaining, that includes what does the, the future of um, a well-balanced, well-managed, well-done uh, it, uh, program look like. And it can't just be one type of hiring because um, even when you look at, let's, let's go back and look at the impact of remote work and how that's having on campuses. And I've seen a lot of people say, well, my campus has now gone to all full-time back in person, so I'm looking for a new job. And so there's a lot of reasons why people are looking for jobs and looking for new places to work. Do you find, is there any data out there that says unionized workforces retain longer, um, have more, um, uh, people are more satisfied? What, what's out there that actually says, you know what, if you want to reduce your churn, unionization is going to help you. So, I don't have statistics off the top of my head, but um, they are available and they will show that on the whole, folks who land in a union job or bring a union into their workplace are more likely to stay. Uh, it changes in certain respects uh, depending on the industry that you work in. Um, there are certain industries that are more seasonal, that are leading to other places. Um, but yeah. even in a place like Starbucks, where you might think that it is a, um, a transitory workforce, there are those who count Starbucks as their permanent full-time job. And they are more likely to stay there if their benefits uh, are, that they are accorded by their employer, perhaps through collective bargaining, are strong. 
That's one of the reasons Starbucks tries to fight against unionizing because they do offer a decent benefit package to uh, their full-time employees. But obviously, it's not enough because employees were asking for more and that's why they're unionizing. Well, and I think that there's, I think some of this, to be honest with you, when I look at it and you say, you know, campuses are about culture, okay? Um, when you think back to your undergraduate experience, when I think back to mine, and um, even now, uh, I, I graduated from Boston University in the late 80s, and when I go back on campus, uh, there are still people who work there from when I was a student, which um, I find absolutely appealing because it makes me feel like I'm coming home, right? Um, in this environment where there's so much churn and there's so much, um, you know, turnover of staff, I'm of the mindset, the more we can keep good people around um, and uh, really retain good employees and also not only pay them well, um, not only give them good benefits, but also make them feel like they belong and therefore the community belongs. These are people who have a huge impact. I mean, I remember going through certain uh, places at the college or university where th that I went as an undergrad and the security assistant who greets you at the door was the same one. He was a union uh, member. He was there for a very long time. Um, he probably retired only a few years ago, but when I would come onto campus uh, years and years later, still remembered me, still made me feel important, still loved to pick on me and make me laugh. Those are the things that make a community. And I actually feel that there is a benefit beyond uh, the, you know, for the employer that they're not paying attention to is that if you have people who actually have a commitment and a desire to stay at a place, uh, you, you actually are creating a better community. What are your thoughts on that? That's that's absolutely right. You know, I am a union guy, so uh, pardon my union folks will pardon me for saying it. The culture of a workplace, whether it's unionized or not, is really what draws people to stay, what draws people to have a good work experience. I find on the whole that when employees collaborate to help have a voice in their own conditions of employment and to make their workplace the place that they want it to be, those are more successful workplaces uh, for employees and ultimately for, for management, for administrations as well, although administrations are scared of it and don't necessarily want to see it. Um, my last question, um, I'm going to give you a prompt and then I'm going to do a, a little bit of news. So I'm going to give you a minute to think about it, but you're a smart guy. You don't need a lot of time. Um, <laughs> but you know, with this, with this, uh, change, uh, in the landscape, as far as unionization, not only on college campuses, but also, um, in greater society, um, what are your thoughts on what's the future of that look like? Where are there industries that we're going to see? Uh, more of this. It's not a blip, um, but where do the legs actually come out of this? Where are the legs going? Uh, what are your thoughts? What is what is the field saying in terms of places to keep an eye on? So I'm going to let you think about that as I uh, remind people about upcoming shows. So next week we have on the 22nd, we'll be joined by several contributors to Brave Women at Work. Stories of resilience, um, including uh, Vice President for Student Affairs at Winthrop University, Sheila Higgs-Burkhalter. Um, I think I said earlier the show was at 12. It's actually 2 o'clock, so I apologize. 
um, and that's Eastern time. On December 6th, we have the Think Tank show returns at 12 noon uh, for our December Think Tank show. And um, please remember, uh, if you have not caught up on all our past episodes, we did five amazing live uh, shows at the Commit to Excellence conference, speaking to faculty and some extraordinary young people who were there for the conference. I really enjoyed um, some of these inspiring conversations. So if you haven't caught up, please do so. They were just wonderful. And uh, shout out to all those students who were able to join us. Uh, so Al, thoughts on the future? What are some industries we may see some things going on? Is there What are some futures about unionization that we shouldn't be surprised if we hear about in the next year to 18 months? What are your thoughts? Well, I happen to have my crystal ball in front of me, so I'm glad I you asked, you right? Yeah, so... <laughs> You're um, all about the, the very nice accessories, Al, so I'm not surprised if you have a crystal ball. Yes, it is, it is, it's solid crystal, and I'll, I'll show it to you when I see you next. So the, it, the future is always hard, um, because I would not have thought 18 months ago that we would be here, right? Um, with the Amazon efforts, with the Starbucks efforts, with the uh, Chipotle efforts and other things expanding and growing... Oh my God, he's telling us the future and he can't be here. Oh, well, what's going on? Okay, yes. what's the future, Al? I want to know. <laughs> the future is um, based in large part on the economy. Okay. Uh, as long as workers have power in the economy, we will see a rise in unionization across these areas that we're seeing it now. But the one thing that will never happen is we'll never go back right? We're never going to move backwards. Uh, and so these new industries where we're seeing unionization in retail coffee chains and small businesses and even large places like Amazon, once you've got your foot in the door there, there is no going backward. And so I think we'll see an expansion in unionization across these various industries that we are seeing that in now. I think it ultimately slows down when the economy uh, improves, but hopefully once the, uh, the seeds are sown, we will then see, uh, at least moving into the future, continued growth in the unionized, uh, unionized sector um, across all these industries. Because I think it's just healthy for the economy, for workers, uh, and ultimately, I mean, it's my union bodafide is talking, but I think a strong union is a good thing for everyone involved with it. Right. That's great. I really enjoy that. And I think we got to keep an eye on that uh, moving forward uh, for a variety of reasons. The economy is going to kind of be a driver for a lot of the things we are feeling, a lot of the things we are seeing, and a lot of things we are doing and investing in. So Al Gordon O'Connell, uh, it is my pleasure to have you on today. Thank you for suffering through our technology realities. And uh, if people want to learn more about you, your work with Pearl Rome, how should they find you? Oh, well, it's very easy to find me. Um, my firm is online at pilerome.com. That's P-Y-L-E-R-O-M-E.com. And there you can read up on me and my firm and what we are doing. We try to keep people apprised of the, the advances that we're seeing every day. So find him at Pile Rome. And uh, thank you, Al, for being here. And I want to thank everybody for listening today and in the replay. And you are listening to Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. It's a live audio broadcast aired and recorded weekly on the Fireside platform. I am your host, Dr. Laura DeVoe, and I thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe to my newsletter, What's Up in the Academy. It is the number one higher education newsletter on the Substack platform. And follow me here on Fireside Twitter, as long as it's still actually in existence, and LinkedIn. Um, links to subscribe are available through my link tree. And uh, now... Get out there and learn something. Have a great day, everybody.
Created live on Fireside.